has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer so to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together in a free nation to worship you, that we can study your word, which is the sole source of our spiritual nourishment, Our Lord prayed, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. It is as we feed on the milk of the word, the meat of the word, that our souls are nourished, that we may grow and mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do this under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who fills us. And Father, we pray that we would be responsive to his ministry, that we would accept the challenge of your word, that we would have the objectivity to evaluate our own thinking and our own lives under the spotlight of your word, that we might apply these things in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we will go back to verse 18, where I began the last time, the last class, but... I was operating under <laughs> under Nyquil. In fact, I uh, I never did ask Jim last night. I, when you finally called, I had spent most of the day trying to figure out where I stopped the last time because I couldn't remember. But I figured if I didn't remember, nobody else did either. So we would just uh, have a certain amount of review and repetition this morning. And uh, I think somebody said, "Well, I don't know what you said." I was so. Uh, Concerned about how bad you sounded, that I was distracted. So we'll just uh, take off from verse 18 again. Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but... Now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness of me also because you have been with me from the beginning. Now there are two things that are covered in these, in these verses From verse 18 down through verse 25, we have the enemy of the believer who is abiding in Christ. Let's make sure we're fitting this into its context. This is the upper room discourse, Jesus' final uh, teachings to the disciples the night before he goes to the cross. It is in this upper room discourse that we see 
the basic themes that will be developed, the basic doctrines that are going to be revealed under the category of the mystery doctrine for the church age. These are truths that have never been revealed before in human history related to the spiritual life, the new spiritual life that is going to uh, be in in action during the church age, the present church age. And there has been a gradual development of these themes began back in John chapter 13 with the Passover, and there Jesus introduces this statement that a slave is not greater than his master. He'll refer to this again in verse 20. There he applied that to the fact that just as he was washing the feet of the disciples, in other words, that was a symbol that represented forgiveness, so the disciples were to forgive one another. He's going to apply it in a different way in this particular passage. He... um, revealed Judas as the betrayer, and then he goes on to give a new commandment in verse 34 of chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That commandment is followed by four questions. It immediately upsets the disciples because in verse 33, Jesus said, I'm not going to be with you much longer, and they immediately get into a discussion. What do you mean you're not going to be with us? And I made the point, and I want to go back and rehearse this again and again, and that is that the writer John and our Lord under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is emphasizing a point, and that is the abysmal spiritual ignorance of the disciples. Now, this is not meant to say that these guys are a bunch of dummies. This is not some sort of insulting, pejorative thing that these guys really don't have room temperature above... I mean, IQ above room temperature, but is simply pointing out the fact that apart from God the Holy Spirit, the natural, the human mind, even the regenerate human mind, can only understand and grasp doctrine to a certain level. Beyond that, the Holy Spirit has to come into play, and that is what is being brought out in this entire discourse. Back there, we saw Peter ask a question, and then Thomas asked a question, and then after that, Philip asks a question that just is a repetition of what Jesus had just asked. And it is in, in the answer to, to Philip's question that the Lord says that he will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And then he begins to introduce this theme that this helper will come and will disclose uh, to you uh, what has happened and what it means. And then we got into verse, uh, or excuse me, into chapter 15, and we learned that the dynamic for the spiritual life in the church age is fellowship with the Lord. It is taught under the principle of abiding in Christ. And we did an extensive study of that passage showing that abiding in Christ means fellowship with Christ. And it is uh, virtually synonymous with the concept in in Galatians chapter 5, to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So it is bringing in this aspect again, this major theme of the Holy Spirit that is going to be brought in in verse 25 and, uh, excuse me, in verse 26 and 27, and then becomes a major theme in chapter 16. So the Lord continues to pick up different threads. You have the thread of loving one another as Christ loved the church. You have the thread of keeping my commandments. You have the thread of fellowship with Christ. You have the thread of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus teaches the disciples this night before He goes to the cross, it's like He's weaving a rope. He takes one strand and then He brings in another strand and and weaves those together. Then he brings in a third strand. Then he goes back and picks up the first one. And he just weaves these together. And there's constant repetition. Add something new. Repeat it. Go back. Pick up a previous point. Bring that in. Show how it relates. And I wish I had time to study these five chapters from John 13 through John 17 and to develop an entire theology of pedagogy from these chapters because it is a wonderful way of showing how to teach. But one of the major issues here is going to be that it is the Holy Spirit and fellowship with Christ that is the dynamic for living the spiritual life. 
But in verses 18 through 24, we have the enemy of the spiritual life presented, one of the enemies of the spiritual life, but here he's focusing on the world. And, of course, the way to overcome the world in context is going to be through the ministry of the Holy Spirit called the Helper. So, apart from the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, there is no way to overcome the cosmos, cosmic thinking. And we have to understand this. To me, the most, I think this is, in my own thinking anyway, this is becoming more and more evident to me, is that cosmic thinking is one of the largest problems facing Christians. We don't understand it. We don't know how to think. We don't know how to evaluate our thinking. And we don't take enough time to think about our thinking. We're just too busy. But I want to give you a little bit of an idea of how worldliness operates. Of how worldliness operates. But before we get there, we need to define the terminology a little bit. So we start off, and our basic Greek word for world is cosmos. Looks like this in the Greek. K-O-S-M-O-S. Now this is, uh, when Jesus talks about this, he uses the word cosmos and not the word ge. G-E. This can mean land or earth. And there is a... There are important distinctions between the two. Now, last time I went over this, there, the basic meaning of cosmos is order, that which is orderly or systematic. Now, this, because we know that cosmos is a term that relates to Satan's orderly, systematic antagonism to God, that tells us that God's, God's divine viewpoint is also orderly and systematic. Now, I remember when I was in seminary, every seminary student has to do what they call practical field education. That's what Dan's doing when we get him up here. He's getting credit for that. He'll be here this summer. He'll be here the next summer for his pastoral internship. I have a real desire to work with these guys in a pastoral internship because mine was so crummy. Now, that's a lightweight word for what it really was. But I was involved at that time in a Southern Baptist church simply because every in Dallas, Dallas is a weird Christian community. And that is because of the presence of Dallas Theological Seminary. And there are uh, many, maybe 30, 40 Bible churches in Dallas that are large churches, and they are heavily populated with Dallas Seminary students, which means it's a weird ecclesiastical environment. When you look out at a congregation and all these guys out there are seminary students, and a lot of them came, went a year, and found another job in Dallas, changes the whole dynamic. And there's a lot of competition, and I didn't want to put up with that, so I decided I'd go to a church where there weren't any, so I went to a Southern Baptist church. And I did my pastoral internship there. There was too much competition for getting slots at other churches, so I took took that route. I remember getting in a discussion with the pastor one day, and he said, well, I just don't believe in in all this systematic stuff. And I said, no, everything's a system. There are orderly, consistent systems. There are disorderly, inconsistent systems. Which do you have? (laughs) See, some people just rebel against thinking very deeply about things. They just want to operate at what they would call a superficial uh, application or devotional level. But see, if you're going to apply the Scriptures, you have to correctly interpret the Scriptures. And to correctly interpret the Scriptures, first you have to correctly exegete the details of the grammar and the syntax and do the word studies. Otherwise, you may wrongly interpret the passage and then you have false application. And unfortunately, too many pastors aren't really concerned with that. They're just people, people, uh, people, and they just want to get involved and glad hand everybody and get stroked and whatever it is they do, make money or fleece the sheep. 
And it's sad because it has distorted much that is in Christianity. But we have to think consistently as believers over and over again. The Scriptures exhort us to think, have this mind, this mentality for now, this objective thinking in you which was in Christ. We are not to be conformed to the world, cosmos there in Romans 12.2. We are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed by the, and the word there for transformed is metamorpho, which is like metamorphosis, which has to do with a radical renovation of our thinking. We are to be transformed uh, in our mind. We're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed in our thinking. So we are constantly mandated in scriptures to evaluate not just what we think, but how we think. Methodology, how you do what you do, is as important as what you do. Because a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Only a right thing done in a right way is right. So the word cosmos has to do with order, orderly thinking. Now it's used in the scriptures to refer to the orderly universe, the, what we would call the universe as a whole. Sometimes the, the, uh, sometimes it's used to refer to the solar system and other times just specifically the earth itself. So that's how cosmos comes to refer to, to the earth. By use of metonymy, which is a figure of speech where a whole is used to describe something that, that is part of it, it comes to describe the people within the world, the, the inhabitants, therefore mankind. That's how it's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. There it's not talking about cosmos as the cosmic system, which is how it's used in chapter 15. It's talking about the inhabitants of the earth, that cosmic system. But primarily the word cosmos refers to Satan's plan. Satan's orderly and cohesive and multifaceted system of thinking, which includes a purpose, policy, and structure of authority designed to subvert the human race and to gain control over the world that he now rules. Now, it's not just one system. It is a complex of systems, and they have certain basic things in common. See, Satan is constantly developing these philosophies and religious systems in order to appeal to man, in order to accomplish his two objectives. And these two objectives are at the very core of cosmic thinking. One is arrogance. And this is exemplified in Satan's five I wills, culminating in the fifth, I will be like the Most High, in Isaiah chapter 14, where Lucifer uttered his desire to replace God and to be like God and to rule over the angels. So arrogance, self-assertion, independence from God, also called autonomy, autonomos, self-law, is one aspect of cosmic thinking. Cosmic thinking always operates on arrogance. On the one hand, there is arrogance, and on the other hand, the second major characteristic is antagonism towards the truth of God's Word. So Satan promotes on the one hand uh, autonomy or arrogance, self-assertion, self-authority, independence from God, and on the other hand, antagonism to God and the things of God. Now this cosmic thinking includes a variety of religions and philosophies, everything from existentialism, idealism, Aristotelianism, Platonism, Cartesianism, uh, whatever it may be, whether it relies exclusively on rationalism, which is like idealism or Platonism, or whether it operates on empiricism like uh, Aristotelianism, uh, Lockean philosophy, because they place the ultimate authority When you push it all the way back to the final, final authority, it is either human reason in rationalism or it is human experience in empiricism. And much of what we learn in school and in our educational system has been informed by either rationalism, empiricism, or a combination thereof. So, and this is going to challenge your thinking this morning, at its basic presuppositional level, much of what we learn is enveloped within a, 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 a interpretive framework that is skewed 
by either empiricism or rationalism. So by the time we become an adult, many of our opinions, much of what we think is common sense sometimes, depending on the background, your home life, your, your, your subculture, whatever it may be, much of what we hold to be true it may be partially false. Maybe it's 90% right, and it's, that means it's fairly workable most of the time, but it's 10% wrong. Charlie Clough will be here filling in for me in about a month. You'll enjoy him. I remember Charlie Clough saying, you know, protein is good for you. You don't want to drink rattlesnake venom, though. It's 100% protein. You don't want to drink it. It's not the glass of water that is 99% pure that is bad for you. It's that drop of cyanide in there. So it doesn't take much in terms of ideas to so infect the whole that maybe 95% of which is, is workable and fairly correct. It's that 5% that's wrong that distorts the whole. So we have to think, and this is the whole process of the Christian life. It's, it's re-education. It's, it's rethinking everything about life. And so when we are exposed to the Word of God, it's going to address every single issue in life. It's going to address economics. It's going to address home life, marital life, social life. It's going to address uh, politics. It's going to address everything. And we're all going to get our toes stepped on and sometimes crushed continuously when we come to the Word of God. But that's the issue in objectivity. We have to be willing to let that happen and to examine what the Word of God actually says. This is why when we come to the concept of cosmos, we realize that there is an antagonism between us and the cosmic system. The cosmic system, first point here, we covered this last time, and I'm adding a lot to it, by the way. The cosmic system hates Christ because the cosmic system is built on an arrogance. Jesus came as a servant in humility. Philippians chapter 2, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And the whole passage there from Philippians 1 down through 10 uh, or down through 8 is talking about humility the true and genuine humility which was in Jesus Christ. So the cosmic system operates on arrogance and antagonism. Those twin principles, uh, those two principles, uh, are clearly antithetical to everything Jesus Christ taught and everything Jesus Christ stood for. And so the Scripture says that for if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before... It hated you. Now, Satan, according to John 14.30, Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system, and he is trying to uh, bring about his kingdom on the earth in opposition to God. And you can trace this throughout the Scriptures. You can go back from the Garden of Eden where Satan tempted Adam in the Garden in order to get him out from under the authority and rule of God and to do things in independence. So there we see that Satan wanted Adam to operate on arrogance. Once he got him following Satan in his sin of autonomy or independence from God, um, then he would promote antagonism toward God. Now, God provided, I covered this last time, I want to reiterate it, I'm not even sure what I said last time in my NyQuil fog, that God has established certain principles, though, that will provide order and stability in the human race in the midst of the, the antagonism of Satan's cosmic thinking. Now, we have to be careful with this, because sometimes the way this is taught it communicates the idea that there's a realm out there of neutrality. But there is no neutrality. You're either in the cosmic system or you're in divine viewpoint. You're either in human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. And James 3:13 through 15 says that uh, cosmic thinking is earthly, demonic, and natural. So there's only two, two spheres. There's no in-between sphere. What establishment principles get people, the human race is a level of stability and peace in their social structures so that there is an environment within which the gospel can be proclaimed. 
There is no such thing as neutrality. We have to get past that. Now, what are these divine institutions? Well, the first divine institution is human responsibility. Now, it's interesting. The reason I'm bringing these up is because it is at this level that cosmic thinking attacks a culture or a society. So we have to evaluate this way. And I'm setting you up because this is a political year. And everybody gets caught up in politics and thinks somehow the political solution is a, is a viable solution. And the scripture says that we are not to trust in princes, but to trust in God, because the political solution is no solution. And I want to give you a framework so that when you hear various candidates talk, you're going to be able to see how infected they are by cosmic thinking. The first divine institution is individual responsibility. God put Adam in the garden and he said, you can eat from any fruit of any tree except for one. You cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the day you eat from it you will surely die. That's personal responsibility and consequences for action. You can immediately see how that is a problem in our final year of the 20th century in American civilization is that we are are we have eschewed personal responsibility for actions and more and more we are expecting human government to step in and provide some sort of safety net for when we fail to operate on our own uh, on our own responsibility so individual responsibility means that we reap what we sow. And when you get government or churches or other groups, whatever it may be, come in and try to ameliorate the circumstances from individual responsibility you're getting in God's way. You are avoiding, you are are, are in some sense short-circuiting divine discipline and consequences for sin. And this flows in our culture today because we don't like a God who is a God of justice where there are consequences. Now, the ultimate authority in individual responsibility is personal volition, that we have a decider. And this runs against certain philosophies they talk about that are basically fatalistic or, or, uh, or mechanistic, determinism, any kind of deterministic uh, philosophy, and this is like B.F. Skinner and some of these other philosophies today. Everything's determined by your genes. Everything's determined by DNA. There is no volition. So when it comes to issues like, like homosexuality, then what happens is uh, you have this gene and so you're predetermined to be that way and it can't change, so go ahead and let it happen. Uh, we need to go ahead and authorize, uh, change the definition of marriage from between a man and a woman to any, any two consenting adults who enter into a contractual relationship, whether they're of the same sex, sex or opposite sex. So this is how this tends to play itself out in terms of... Uh, of cosmic thinking, you do away with volition and you end up in some sort of, of a fatalism. The second divine institution is that of marriage. Marriage is instituted, notice in the scriptures, marriage is instituted in the Garden of Eden before the fall, in perfect environment. So marriage is not given as a way to solve problems. Some people think that if they'll just get married, they'll solve the problems in their life. Marriage is not a problem solver. Sometimes marriage is a problem creator. But marriage was designed in perfect environment as a stabilizer even in a perfect society. So marriage is designed by God to be between two people 
of the opposite sex, male and female. And as we saw in our study of Genesis chapter 1, they are both in the image of God and it is together in that marital harmony, the man as the as the head of the home and the woman as the helper, that they come together to fulfill God's plan and purposes for mankind. They were seen originally before the fall as working together as a team, even though there is authority structure within that team to bring about God's plan for the human race. So therefore we have to look at marriage and when you look at legislation that is promoted or you look at policies that are promoted by, by candidates for office, you need to think, well, what impact does this have on marriage? For example, we have had problem for the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years with a marriage penalty in the income tax code. Any congressman who votes for its continuation is, by definition, anti-marriage. That is an anti-marriage piece of legislation. It fosters, there are people, I talked to my accountant about this down in Houston, and he said there are all kinds of people out there that people think are married and are not legally married for tax reasons. Because they make so much money, they are not legally married in order to reap the tax benefits of not being married. So, we have to look at things like that. Third point is family. Family. This is why there is the problem that we have in the education system is because that our society, the cosmic system that operates our culture, has been in opposition to both marriage and family for the last 50 years or more. Because of a breakdown in authority structure in the home and, and Dr. Spock and all of the other um, human viewpoint systems of child training and everything else that dominated in the 50s and 60s, what we see is, have you ever noticed, everybody wants family television, they want to go back to the 50s? Think about this a minute. Go back to the 50s, once leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and all the family-oriented shows that everybody thinks was so great. The kids that grew up on that ended up being the anti-authority 60s generation. Just think about it. You know, you watch the Family Channel, and the Family Channel got its start because they were showing all the repeats of the 50s television shows because this is good for the family. Well, why didn't that work on the 60s? Just something to think about. (laughs) Family breakdown. When parents do not back the authority of the local school and the teachers in the local school, and I saw this when I first got out of college. I taught school a couple of years. And um, I didn't really teach in the classroom. My, I was sort of the, um, I don't know, the penal code officer. When they suspended kids, they decided they would quit sending them home because that was too much fun for some of them. <laughs> so they sent them to me. <laughs> they didn't like that at all. But what, we just, what I saw there was a complete breakdown in the family. The family... Parents were not backing teachers anymore and backing the authority of the school. The kid was always right, not the teacher, because the parents, in turn, had grown up with an anti-authority bias. So they just assumed, because they never learned authority orientation growing up, they just assumed that when they became parents that it wasn't the kid's fault, it was the teacher's fault. And this just snowballs through society, and you see with the high... Uh, divorce rate, which goes back to a problem with individual responsibility and uh, breakdown in marriage. You see breakdown in family, so we have so many single-parent homes. This is a systemic problem that is not going to be solved by government programs because, you see, the issue, the underlying problem here is a spiritual problem. It is not an economic problem. It is not an education problem. It is not a government problem. It is a spiritual problem, and you will not solve this problem through any kind of crusader activism, any kinds of demonstrations. You won't solve it by any kind of getting one party or another into office. It can only be resolved by changing the structure of the thought of society. And we've got to get off of human viewpoint and onto divine viewpoint, and until that happens, we are going to continue down the road of self 
destruction. Fourth divine institution. The fourth divine institution is human government. Human government was not authorized during the antediluvian civilization. That is the pre-flood civilization. From Genesis 1 through Genesis 6, there was no human government. There was a patriarchal organization, and I believe God still uh, had his abode on earth in the Garden of Eden, and ultimate justice was meted out by God at the edge of the Garden of Eden. That's my that's my conclusion from studying those scriptures, and that is why it is not until after the flood uh, that God delegates authority to mankind for judicial decisions, and, if, and this is done through giving man the right to make the most extreme judicial decision, which is capital punishment. The Noahic Covenant authorizes and mandates capital punishment. Now, God, in his omniscience, knew that there would be injudicious uses of capital punishment and that man, because man is fallen, would not always exercise objectivity and clarity of thought in capital punishment. Nevertheless, he delegated that authority, so it is not up to man to say, well, we might make a mistake, so let's not do it. It is up to man to devise a system of government that will do its very best to have an equitable and fair judicial system. Now, the delegation of authority for capital punishment was part of the Noahic covenant. God said the sign of this covenant is a rainbow. As long as you see a rainbow in the sky, you know I will never judge and destroy the earth again by flood. In the same way... Every aspect of that covenant is still in operation as long as you see a rainbow. So God has not removed the delegation of judicial responsibility in capital punishment since you still see a rainbow every now and then when it rains. Now this idea, this emphasis on human government and the institution of human government is reiterated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13. Verse 1 reads, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, I want you to understand the dynamic here. Paul is not writing Romans 13 under an ideal form of government. When he wrote Romans 13, Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. One of the most degraded, perverted, abusive emperors of all history. And yet, Paul writes that every believer was to be in submission to even illegitimate, even perverted governing authorities because even those authorities are not in place except from God. Even those sorts of governments, even tyrannical governments, are in place under the sovereignty of God and exist under His under his authority. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now, there he's giving the principle. See, the principle for human government, the purpose is to restrain criminality inside the nation, And it is to protect the nation from the incursion of external enemies. Therefore, you have to have a strong police force, a solid judicial system, because in the next passage it says, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And the sword was the instrument of execution in beheading criminals, capital punishment in the Roman Empire. So the bearing of the sword implies both legitimacy to a military force and legitimacy to capital punishment in the New Testament. Now, as I said the last time, every time you get into any kind of argument and watch this on the news shows, on the talk shows, watch it. Every time you get into this discussion and this debate, somebody trots out the idea, well, it's really not a deterrent because of this and because of that. Notice the Scriptures. Go back and read the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9. The Noahic Covenant does not argue for capital punishment on the basis of deterrence. It argues on the basis of the fact that a person who is murdered, the victim, 
is in the image of God. And because somebody has taken that life, has robbed that person of everything that they are and everything that they could be, and because that by murdering them they have attacked an image bearer, a representative of God, even if it's an unbeliever, they have attacked a human being who is in the image of God, that it is an assault on God and therefore worthy of death immediately. And that is the emphasis on once again, individual responsibility and consequences for action. So we see things like, in terms of worldliness, uh, cosmic thinking, you see things like the anti-death penalty uh, movement. That is, if you're against the death penalty, then you have bought into cosmic thinking. You, As a believer, you are operating on worldliness. If you buy into a tax code that uh, has a marriage penalty tax, that's, that's a form of worldliness because it's anti-marriage. Gun control. Here's a fun one. Let's go back and on our way, uh, jumping around the scriptures. Very few people see this in the scriptures, and with the, all the hubbub going on today, let's turn and look at First Samuel 13:19. First Samuel 13:19. The context of First Samuel 13 is that the Philistines are oppressing the Jews, and they have for about 80 years. At this particular point, this is before David comes along. This is before David and Goliath. Uh, this is after uh, Samson has had his debacle with the, uh, uh, with the Philistines. The Philistines are the last enemy in Judges. All through the book of Judges, you have one external enemy after another attack and enslave Israel. And then they finally repent. You go through this cycle of uh, discipline and this cycle of destruction and then they finally uh, turn back to the Lord and God delivers them and then after they're delivered they turn their back on God and this cycle goes on all the way through judges and God continually raises up deliverers in the form of these judges and those judges get progressively carnal and infected by the world system so that by the time you get to Jephthah uh, in Judges, I think it's Judges chapter 8, I ought to remember that, I wrote a master's thesis on it. By the time you get to Jephthah, Jephthah makes a vow to God that if you would, uh, God, if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice to you the, as an ola, a burnt offering, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house to greet me when I come home. So when he comes home, his daughter runs out of the front door to greet him. And so Scripture says he did to her as he vowed. And all the little squeamish evangelicals say, oh, well, he really didn't kill her. He just took her up on the mountain to be a, a, a perpetual virgin to God. Well, that's not what the text says. The text says he did to her what he vowed, and what he vowed was to offer her up as a burnt offering. That's what he did because he's operating on cosmic thinking. He was raised outside the land with a bunch of brigands and pirates, and he's not much better than that. But he does trust God at one crucial point in his career, and that is to, to defeat the Ammonites. And he wins, and the next judge after him is even worse, and that's Samson. And we all know about the, you know, the fact that the uncontrolled lust of Samson. And Samson's the first judge that doesn't defeat the enemy, that doesn't finally defeat the enemy. And so at the end of Judges, they're under the heel and the oppression of the Philistines, who continue to dominate them until David defeated them later on. But how was it that the Philistines were able to keep the Jews under subjection. Let me suggest to you the answer is in verse 19 of chapter 13, and it's what we now call arms control. Arms control. Now, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel because, that's a bad translation for it's a preposition key, because the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshares, mattock, his axe, and his hoe. Now the point is the, the Jews were still in the Bronze Age. So they had weapons made of bronze. But the Philistines, who were Greek sea peoples, had advanced technologically to iron. So they had iron spears and they had iron swords. And when iron meets bronze in combat, guess what wins? So, here's the principle. In order to keep one people under subjection, under the heel of tyranny, the stronger people prevents them, pay attention here, from having in their private possession the latest technological 
developments for protection. Now, I don't know why a sportsman would want to have an Uzi or would want to have a 36-round banana clip for uh, an AR-15 or whatever it is that he has, but that's not the issue. And that's going to be the argument you hear from everybody. But the point is, throughout history from ancient times to the present, when people are not allowed to have the latest technological advancements in personal protection, somebody else will have it, the military and the police will, and that is a prescription for tyranny and the loss of freedom. And I don't care what happens in this country, and what is going to happen is we're going to have more and more of these incidences where you have children bringing arms to school and, and slaughtering other children, and you're going to have more and more liberals screaming for gun control. And that's not the solution, that's because that's not the problem. Now, I don't know what it was like up here 30 years ago, but I don't know what it was like in Texas 30 years ago. And in Texas 30 years ago, I could drive a pickup truck to high school with a 3030 on a gun rack in the middle of Houston, and nobody... I remember carrying a 12-gauge in the backseat of my car all the time. Even when I got pulled over for a traffic ticket, nobody said anything. Why? Because the culture has changed. There was a culture in the 60s and before where people understood authority and they understood absolutes and there was a strength of moral character in the society so that people did not utilize that irresponsibly. Now, you can go to Texas, you can go to Alabama, you can go to Mississippi, you've probably come up here. And that was true in rural, especially in rural areas. I remember when I used to work summers out of Camp Nile every summer, every one of us would be driving a pickup truck around, and we all had, we'd go into town, we'd go, we wouldn't even lock the car, the truck doors. You'd go into town, you'd go shopping, you'd have a 30-30, because you needed it. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times we'd be driving down the road and have some big old rattlesnake you'd find out there, and you'd have to get out and shoot it. <laughs> But, you know, this was just standard. And kids could show, showed up in school with a, with a gun on a gun rack. Nobody said anything. What's changed is the kids. And why has that changed? Because there's no doctrine in the land anymore. There's no moral fiber in the land anymore. And the solution is not to outlaw guns. And the solution is not to outlaw advanced technology. The issue and the only issue is a spiritual issue and it is not until people in this country turn around and turn back to the Lord and turn back to truth and to establishment principles and to Bible doctrine that there will be any kind of permanent solution. And apart from that, we're just going to go further and further downhill and because we live in a culture now that is so absorbed with this kind of cosmic thinking what you are going to see is more and more tyranny, more and more people wanting government solutions, more and more people looking to the government to provide security and peace and prosperity. And that's, number one, it's not the role of government, according to Scripture. And number two, they don't have it to give it. Now, we're going to hear a lot of stuff this year, and I just want you to be prepared to be able to evaluate what the various candidates try to promise and try to say, and you'll just see how, how we have sucked up demonic thinking. Now, that's a hard word, but if you go to James, go back and we saw that on Wednesday night, James says that non-divine viewpoint thinking is earthly, natural, and demonic because it buys into these twin, I mean these two, Fundamental aspects of arrogance and autonomy and antagonism to the Word of God. So the third divine institution is human government. And, that all, and a fourth way in which we look to government to provide our solutions is economically. And we see things like just socialism. For example, we see things operate, the Fed wanting to put into policy today, policies to control... Um, Inflation, which hasn't been on the horizon, but I think we are going to see some devastating 
inflation in the coming year with this gas hike. As we're seeing the price in gasoline go up 30-40%, we'll be seeing $2 a gallon gas here probably within another month. And the consequences of that on the cost of food, the cost of everything, clothes, everything that has to be transported, and it's going to ripple with a tidal wave through everything. I think we're going to see, we can very well see, I'm not going to be a predictor because I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but um, if this continues, this is the same kind of thing we saw in this, remember back in the 70s, those of you who are old enough to remember, back in the mid-70s we saw gas go from about 35 cents a gallon to a dollar, dollar ten, a dollar twenty a gallon between about 74 and 76, and what did we see by 79? We saw double-digit inflation and double-digit interest rates, and that's the ripple effect. So we ought to be wise, and we ought to be prepared for that. But all of this is simply by way of introduction to cosmic thinking, and if you are a believer and you believe in the Scriptures and what the Scriptures teach, you are going to see that you, <clears throat> your opinions and your views on life are 180 degrees opposite those of everyone around you. And so Jesus says, if the world hates you, meseo, a very strong word for antagonism, and legalism, religion, atheism, secularism, psychology, all of these things, modernism and postmodernism, are all antagonistic to Christians and Christianity, we will be the, the group that is blamed. And I think we saw some hints of that during the primary season. If the world hates you, and I'm not saying I go along with some of the fundamentalist crowd that is, was blamed, but the underlying issues go much beyond some of their fundamentalism and legalism, but it's always a spiritual conflict because the world is antagonistic to absolutes. Second point. Once we're in the plan of God, the believer no longer belongs to the cosmic system. We no longer belong to the cosmic system. You are positionally different. Therefore, you shouldn't think like that anymore. You no longer belong there. If, verse 19 says, If you were of the world, if, and this is a second class condition, if and you are not, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of, that is from the source of the world. But I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. That first clause, if you were of the world, but you're not, the world would love, that is phileo, it would have an attraction for you. There is a natural affinity between the unbeliever, the natural man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that word natural is translated sukikas, soulish. That means absent of a sp- human spirit, no spiritual life, not regenerate. So there is an attraction between the unbeliever, the natural man, and human viewpoint thinking, which is also classified in the Scriptures as natural. That is the attraction there. The world loves its own. There's a natural affinity there. But because you are not of the world, of the cosmic system, but we are chosen out of the world, the world will hate us. Now, the cosmic system is very attractive to people. This is why sometimes when they hear a message like this, they, people who are not educated in the Scriptures think only of the devil in terms of, of sort of an exorcist type of presentation where the devil is, is always paying harsh, evil terms like a Hitler or a Stalin, something like that. One of the best statements on, on worldliness and the cosmic thinking is in Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, Volume 2, page 100. Let me read this. Think about this. Next to the lie itself, the greatest delusion Satan imposes, and it reaches to all the unsaved and to a large proportion of Christians, is the supposition that only such things as society considers evil could originate with the devil if indeed there be any devil to originate anything. See, what he is saying is society classifies certain things as evil, and that's what the devil produces. He goes on to say, It is not the reason of man, but the revelation of God, which points out that governments, morals, 
education, art, commercialism, vast enterprises and organizations, and much of religious activity are included in the cosmos diabolicus. That is, the system which Satan has constructed includes all the good which he can incorporate into it. That means there are many good, wonderful, altruistic things that, because of the system they're plugged into, are evil. That is, the system which Satan has constructed includes all the good which he can incorporate into it and be consistent in the thing he aims to accomplish. A serious question arises whether the presence of gross evil in the world is due to Satan's intention to have it so, or whether it indicates Satan's inability to execute all he has designed. The point he's making is Satan doesn't really want war and catastrophe and calamity. He's supposed to be the ruler of this world and bring in peace and stability and harmony. So Chafer makes brilliant observation here that, it, that, that this is really, all this gross evil is just an example of Satan's lack of ability, not what he is trying to accomplish. The probability is great that Satan's ambition has led him to undertake more than any creature could ever administer. Revelation declares that the whole cosmos system must be annihilated, not its evil alone, but all that is in it, both good and bad. God will incorporate nothing of Satan's failure into that kingdom which he will set up in the earth. The cosmos diabolicus must be broken in pieces and become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors which the wind carries away and all this before the smiting stone Christ in his return to the earth will set up a kingdom which will fill the whole earth. Brilliant analysis of the cosmic system. Once we leave the cosmic system by faith alone in Christ alone, we will become a target. You will have a target on your back in the angelic conflict, whether you like it or not. Point number three, God's selection of believers angers those who are rejected. Satan and all the demons are rejected, so we, are, we anger them. Because we are chosen out of the world... Jesus says, but I chose you out of the world because of this. Because of this, the world hates you. Then in verse 20, he quotes what he has said previously to demonstrate the principle that the servant is not greater than the master. In, verse, in chapter 13, the point was that because you're not greater than the master, and if the master forgives, we need to forgive. Here he takes the same principle that a slave is not greater than his master, and applies it in a different direction. He says, if they persecuted me, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Two classifications are those who persecute or are antagonistic to Christ. The cosmic system is antagonistic and persecutes him. Therefore, they will persecute those who are associated with him. If they keep my word but they don't, they will keep yours also. So those who are uh, responsive to the Word of God, those who are on positive volition and who accept the Gospel and grow spiritually, they will keep yours also. That is, you here refers to the uh, disciples. Point number five. The cosmic system is ignorant of the plan of God. The cosmic system is, I should add add an adverb here, is willfully ignorant of the plan of God. They have rejected it knowingly. It is not an, uh, oh, I just didn't know about it. It is clear from Romans chapter 1 that the knowledge of God is evident to them because God made it evident within them. So everyone knows God exists. Everyone reaches a point of God consciousness where they know God exists. And it is that point that they have to decide uh, to go on positive volition and want to know more about God or to reject God and to worship the creation rather than the Creator. This verse verse 5 reads, or verse um, 21 reads, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. For my name's sake. Now, let's, we need to understand that particular phrase. For my name's sake is not simply because you attach the name of Jesus to yourself or to your cause. It is for we have seen in our study of of uh, 
Aramaisms and the Aramaic in previous Hebrew culture that the concept of name represents what a person is. It represents its character, its essence. So when Jesus says they will do these things to you, he is saying, for my name's sake, he is saying they will do these things to you because of who I am. Because I am undiminished deity, I am the second person of the Trinity, I am the God-man, I am undiminished deity, united with true humanity for all eternity, because of who I am and what I am doing on the cross, they will persecute you. The issues are spiritual, they tie into the angelic conflict. And ultimately it is because they do not know the one who sent me. Now, you're going to find all kinds of religious systems that talk about God and say many things about God. But what Jesus says is they don't know. And that word for for knowledge there implies not just academic knowledge, but a relationship. They do not have a relationship with the one who sent me because they have rejected him. It's the same thing Jesus said to the Pharisees. You do not know the one who sent me. Now, they are steeped in the Old Testament and in the Mosaic Law and in all sorts of religion and morality, but Jesus said, you still don't know the Father because they have rejected grace. Sixth thing pointed out in verse 22 is that the cosmic system, cosmic people react because Jesus Christ and believers expose, our very presence exposes the reality of their sin. See, man wants to say there's no such thing as sin, We're not responsible. It's just the way we are. Everything is really good. It's not really bad. And Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them by his coming and by his speaking, he has exposed their religious system. He's exposed their hypocrisy. They would not have sinned. They could have gone on and said, see how good we are, how moral we are. And Jesus came along and said, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. There's dead men's bones on the inside. You only look good on the outside, but you are rotten on the inside, by his coming and by his teaching, he has exposed the reality of their sin so that now there is no excuse and they react to that. So Jesus has exposed all of their hypocrisy and taught that spirituality is by grace, it is not by legalism. Point seven, the world hates God, the cosmic system is antagonistic to God and therefore is antagonistic or hates those who are associated with his plan or purposes. So when you are a believer, you are by position in Christ, you are identified with Christ, and so whether you like it or not, you are a target. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them, verse 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. So because of the antagonism to God, there is antagonism to every believer. We are involved in this warfare. We are involved in this antagonism, whether you like it or not. This is the reality of life. And point number eight, the world hates us because uh, because of Jesus, and they have no answer for Jesus' impeccability. The world hates us because of Jesus, and they have no answer for Jesus' impeccability. Verse 25. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in the law, they hated me without a cause. Jesus was perfect. He was undiminished deity, eternal, He existed throughout all of eternity. And when he came to the earth, he was born of a virgin. Therefore, there was not a human father involved, so he did not inherit a sin nature genetically from his father. Adam's original sin, therefore, was not imputed to him because there was no sin nature home for that imputation of a sin nature. And Jesus committed no personal sins. So Jesus was absolutely perfect. That is the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. So Scripture can say, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And because there was no cause, because His trial was illegitimate, and they broke a number, we'll see it when we get there, they violated a number of rules and regulations and laws in the Mishnah, and they violated Roman law as well. The entire trials were illegal on trumped-up charges. There were no 
uh, witnesses and the, the ones they did manage to, to uh, scare up lied. Uh, Jesus, they had no cause, and that is why they were antagonistic, is because sinners cannot stand the truth of a perfect, righteous God who comes in judgment. Now, what is the solution? The solution is found in verses 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth. See, Spirit of truth is in contrast to cosmic thinking, which is deceptive. So this is the solution. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us and who leads and directs us. The the Helper, this is the paraclete who comes alongside to help us. He is the source of our strength in the spiritual life, the spirit of truth, so that his operation is related to the truth, which is the word of God. He proceeds from the Father, and he will bear witness of me, and you then will bear witness of me because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, there's an important doctrinal issue here in the phrase, who proceeds from the Father, and we don't have time to get into that this morning. We'll save that for next Sunday morning. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your revelation. We thank you for the truth of your word. We know that your word is infallible. Your word is inerrant. Your word tells it like it is and it describes our condition perfectly. In your word we learn that we are all sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make that sure. The issue is not moral reformation. The issue is not joining a church. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Every sin you commit, every sin you will commit, was paid for by Jesus Christ. It is, it is, the penalty is paid. All you have to do is accept the free gift of that substitutionary payment. Father, we just pray for the rest of us that are believers already, that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, that we may be uh, willing to, to step up and accept the challenge, to evaluate our thinking, to examine our souls for cosmic thinking, human viewpoint opinions that distract us and get us away from doctrine and hinder our spiritual growth, that we may continue to advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.